You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And now your host, Michael Easley. Galatians 3, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Paul is explaining here that it does not matter our ethnic background, whether we're a man, a woman, whether we're a slave or a free person. When we come to Christ, there is a unity. We are one body. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This unifying principle, unfortunately, is lost in a fallen world. Even today, in 2017, racial tensions, and some might argue, are at an all-time high. During Black History Month, we invited several of our friends to talk about race relations in our country. What do we do with Black Lives Matter? What do we do with black-on-black crime? What do we do when a white police officer shoots an African-American young person? How do we as Christians dialogue about these issues without becoming vitriolic, without becoming defensive or angry, to understand we are indeed one in Christ Jesus. So we called three African-American voices who have different opinions about this conversation. Dr. Crawford Loritz, a teaching pastor in Roswell, Georgia, and an author of eight books. Jesse Lee Peterson, an outspoken critic of race relations, president and founder of Bond, a group that's dedicated to rebuilding the family by rebuilding the man. And Tasha Morrison, founder of Be the Bridge, an organization dedicated to racial unity. So to start my conversation with each of our guests, I wanted to hear their opinions on what progress as a nation we have made, or not, in race relations. First, let's hear from Dr. Loritz. Let me just bottom line and say this. In many respects, I think progress has been made, and I don't think that can be denied. We can sleep in hotels and eat in restaurants, and and my kids have gone to different schools. And we just had an African-American who was president of the United States of America. But in some ways, the polarization is still there. I think that racism still exists, and it's in very subtle ways, and not so subtle ways, uh, evidenced by the reaction to some of the police shootings and some of the reaction to uh, this administration. So the racial divide continues to be here. So it's a mixed bag is what I'm saying. Yes, there has been progress, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. So to use Crawford's words, he summed up our racial relations progress as a mixed bag. Now let's jump to Tasha Morrison, who takes a slightly different approach. I think as a country, we are missing it. We have made some great progress. Things are not what they used to be, but we could be further along the road if we have owned our sins. As a country, we've never owned our sins. I think as a church, the church historically has been on the wrong side of history as it relates to racial division. We have African-American and Asian denominations because people weren't allowed to worship in the same community because of the color of their skin. And there's a lot of denominations that have repented of that sin, but we haven't done anything as it relates to biblical justice to set it right. We've made some progress, but 
I hold the world and the church at a different standard. Uh, We'll talk about our responsibility as the church more later in the episode. But I want you to hear from Jesse Lee Peterson and his thoughts on our nation and the progress it's made in race relations. It is worse than any other time in the history of America. Under Barack Obama, he managed to divide us like no one else has ever done. And he did it with the intent to gain power and wealth and the redistribution of power and wealth by attacking white police officers pretending that they were racist against black people. And then once the Department of Justice goes in there, they redistribute the power of the police departments around the country. You know, I'm sorry to report things are worse off than any other time with the races, unfortunately. And we have to be honest that there is no such thing as racism, that racism is an illusion. It's always been an illusion. It's a lie made up by the race hustlers. You know, the scripture says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirits and principalities and wickedness and evil in high places. It's a spiritual problem. There's some moral issues. And most blacks are suffering not because of this phony idea of racism, but the lack of moral character due to the destruction of the family. And we need to start dealing with that. Unless we deal with the truth of what's wrong with black Americans, they're never going to get better in their lives. So, racism is an illusion? It's a lie made up by race hustlers? It's a phony idea? For some of us, that's hard to swallow. For others, you might be in agreement. Now, I knew Crawford would disagree with Jesse's statement, and I was curious to get a response from him based on what you just heard. Obviously, there probably was a broader context there, and I don't know if he was using a bit of hyperbole when he made that statement. So with that bit of a disclaimer, I just have to tell you I categorically disagree with that statement. I don't think racism is an illusion. It's sin. It's the sin of partiality with pigmentation. As long as we have been alive, there has been this insidious thing in us that's driven by our fallen nature to discredit, discount, and dominate other people who happen to be different from us. And then particularly uh, in terms of how our country was developed, that's ignoring the fact that African Americans came over here on sort of like a, a forced cruise, to say the least. We were placed here in the history in our country has been the struggle of people of color trying to be treated with equality and justice. So I have no idea the context of that conversation or what he meant by that. So we've heard from Crawford, from Jesse and Tasha, with very different perspectives on how race relations have progressed or not in our country. I also wanted to hear from them about current events. And just to provoke our memory, 2012, Trayvon Martin was shot and killed In 2014, Eric Gardner is killed by an NYPD officer who put a chokehold on him on the side of the road. John Crawford is shot dead by police after they saw a toy gun. Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson, starting the riots that went on for weeks. In 2015, Freddie Gray died from injuries that were related to his arrest and or a spinal cord injury. In 2016, Anton Sterling is shot five times in the chest by close range by police officers. Philando Castile is shot by police in Minnesota. Five police officers are killed by a sniper at a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas, Texas. Charles Kinsey is shot while trying to help a patient with autism. Keith Lamont Scott was shot and killed by an officer in Charlotte, North Carolina. His daughter Facebook live-streamed the aftermath of the shooting. 
The Washington Post reports that 233 black people were killed by police in 2016. But the total number of civilians shot and killed by police in 2016 was 963. So 233 were black civilians, 465 were white. The numbers from the Bureau of Justice Statistics show that between 1980 and 2008, blacks were six times more likely than whites to be homicide victims and seven times more likely than whites to commit homicide. Now, we can go on dizzying ourselves with all kinds of data, and as we drill down on those stories, there are obviously two sides to each of these events. So I wanted to talk to our guest about this running commentary that is so radically fueled by these events. First, let's hear from Tasha. You can't really have that conversation without really dealing with the historical context of what's happening in those issues. When we start talking about Ferguson and all those things, all those are outcomes of a sinful systemic issues that we've never addressed. So we have to look at why do we have the South side of Chicago, the South side of Chicago where there's concentrated poverty and all those issues stem from Jim Crow era, Let's look at the education system in those communities. Let's also look at the unemployment rate in those communities. So you're dealing with people who have come out of prison. Are there any second opportunities and second chances? And we know statistically it's easier for a white person to get a job with a felony than a black person to get a job with a college degree. And we have to look at it and say, what's wrong with that system? Now, Tasha brings up a great point. And Crawford shared similar remarks during our conversation. Yet another theme that comes up from both Crawford and Jesse Lee was the family breakdown and how that impacts the system. Uh, The Florida situation with Trayvon Martin, the uh, Chicago situation, those people are dead because their parents failed them. They had no good parents who were not married, fathers and mothers, husband and wife, raising their children together. They were out doing whatever it is that they were doing. They ignored their children, and their kids became thugs. And they're angry at their parents for failing them. And instead of telling them to forgive their parents so that this cycle of hate and anger and violence can stop, they're being told that it's a white man trying to keep them down. Black Americans got to overcome their anger, return to God, love him with all their heart, soul, and might, and then when black men and women want children, get married, and fathers and mothers raise their children together. Nothing else is going to solve the problem but that. Again, I was curious how Crawford would respond to the argument that the family unit was the critical element to racial issues that we see unfolding. There is a relationship between the survival and thriving of the African-American community and the strength of our families, no question about it. Without fathers in the home, there's a lack of perspective and proportionate and disciplined behavior to know how to handle some of these things and how to respond in the proper way. I don't want to use that as an excuse for brutality or anything at all, but where there are fathers in the home and where there's a sense of direction, then you don't have to look for gangs to associate with. At this point, I'm, I'm transitioning into all of the crazy stuff that's going on in Chicago with the gang killings and the random shootings and all of this stuff, that doesn't have anything to do with white police officers. That has to do with just flat-out lawlessness. Where there is poverty and where there is the representation of only one ethnic group, 
then I think if you got crime, you're doing it to your own folks. The way we have to discuss these issues is you got to deal with injustice and poverty, and you got to deal with family. Well, let's step back on this just a little bit. How does media handle these issues? When it comes to Black Lives Matter, do Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, is Black Lives Matter a good thing? So I wanted to hear from our guests. Well, first of all, Black Lives Matter is a evil, angry, destructive, agitative group of uh, people who are mostly lesbians, uh, black lesbians and black homosexuals, and communist, socialist, liberal, white people. And they could care less about black lives. Because if they truly cared about black lives, if black lives really mattered to these people, they would be down in Chicago on the south side protesting there and insisting that the thugs be arrested in order to protect the innocent blacks who are stuck in those areas. They would have gone down to Ferguson and protected and worked along with the cops rather than against them. They would also be protesting Planned Parenthood, who is, uh, by way of abortion, killing more black unborn children than anyone, anything else that I can think of. Well, Jesse has some strong opinions. Crawford, however, has a very different perspective on this. First of all, I, I think the movement got hijacked, okay? It's like so many other things. Originally, the expression Black Lives Matter meant Black Lives Matter too. Now, the movement itself, there are elements in that that's not right. I mean, rioting, killing people, hurting folks, tearing a property, all of that stuff, that ain't cool. I mean, that's wrong. That is flat out wrong. But what we have to be careful of is that we don't say because it ended up in the wrong place, that somehow or another we just sort of, with one broad brush, say that the whole concept of Black Lives Matter, you see that? That's wrong. Well, no, we can't go there with that. I think even in the civil rights movement, the branches of that movement, like SNCC and all these other groups that spun off from it, the Black Panther Party and this kind of thing, that didn't represent the origin of the civil rights movement. And I think the leaders have a moral responsibility to say, hey, look, where we ended up is not where we should be. We need to come back and really underscore the value of all human lives. And we are saying Black Lives Matter because there seems to be a disproportionate emphasis on the broader community and their lives, and you're not recognizing the value of our lives. This is a great conversation. And as you're hearing, there's no simple agreement on one, two, three things. We have very different perspectives. What is a church's role? Now, I, for one, don't like blaming everything on the church. The church needs to do this and do that. But uh, how do individual church leaders wrestle with this subject? What's the church to do? Let's hear finally from Tasha and Crawford on their opinions. Christ died so that we could be reconciled to God, and then in turn we can be reconciled relationally. Reconciliation is not just saying it's beyond diversity. It's beyond just having a Asian friend or a Latino friend or a white friend or a black friend. Reconciliation says that my pain is your pain, my joy is your joy, my lament is your lament. And there's another level of empathy that even if I don't agree, I'm able to have empathy with you and to be able to kind of right that wrong. And that work of reconciliation, it costs you. 
is very difficult. And I think that's why um, we, the church, have not achieved that. I think one of the things is definitely we need to pray. Um, I think we need to educate ourselves on the issues and not look to the news to educate us on the, on the issues. And I think we need to get in relationship with people who don't look like us. So I point. I really believe that God has created a glorious moment for the Church of Jesus Christ to be the visible destination at which the culture needs to arrive. And I think we can provide some solutions by representing that glorious kingdom and the portrait of what heaven should be like down here. And again, I'm not talking about every place being that. The communities in which we live are probably two to three times more diverse than the churches that are in those communities. But if we would begin to mirror the communities in which we live, then I really believe that our message would be received with a lot more integrity. So that's where I am on that, Michael. You know, as I listen to our guest, I don't know a precise landing on each of these viewpoints. What I can say is I appeal to Scripture, and I appeal to you and me that we have conduct that is becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Recently, I was reminded of the phrase, unbecoming conduct. In fact, one of the law encyclopedias defines it as conduct on the part of a certified professional that is contrary to the interest of the public served by that profession, or where it harms the standing of a profession in the eyes of the public. In other words, how you and I act affects those who we serve as well as others who watch us. Now, can the believer in Jesus Christ act unbecomingly? Sure. So the question becomes, how is our conduct becoming as believers in Christ? In 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle is writing dispersed Christians. They've been essentially exiled from their homelands because of their Christianity. And he writes this impassioned list of how they are to conduct themselves as exiles in a foreign land. Listen to just some of these admonitions. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil, to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. He didn't say shouting at them, by the way. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So let me give you a few observations from Peter's admonition and think about it in the context of racial reconciliation and racial tensions that we have. Number one, conduct yourself honorably. Each one of us has the responsibility how we speak, how we tweet, what we put on social media. It is a reflection of becoming conduct. Are we representing Christ and the fellowship that we're part of? Secondly, submit to authority. Those words are hard for us to choke down. We've become an independent, rights-oriented culture. We worship our personal rights. The Christian needs to lay those down. The Christian submits to God, and we submit to human authority as to the Lord. There's no disclaimer there that says if the authority is evil or wrong or abusive or angry. Thirdly, doing good silences fools. 
That's a novel idea in our social media culture. <laughs> Doing good silences fools. If you and I submit to authority, we do the right thing in the right way, our behavior, our manner, our attitude communicates a lot more than putting out a clever tweet, a clever meme, or a sarcastic response. Four, submit as free people. Because we have a relationship with Christ, we have the opportunity to follow him saying, you know, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to submit to you as my authority. I'm not going to submit to my own passions, my own energy. Five, honor everyone. Believers in Christ have the opportunity to respect other people, even when you disagree, even when I disagree. We can be respectful and kind and see them as image bearers of God. Six, love the brothers and sisters. Probably the greatest lesson for me in racial relationships has been pursuing African-American friends and listening to them, loving them, and hopefully they love me as well. We may not always agree, but we can look past our disagreements and say, I love you as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ. You're made in God's image, as am I. Seven, fear God. You know, this is an overlooked part of the admonition of Scripture. We refer to that as being respectful. And that's an adequate, but I don't think sufficient meaning. I think there needs to be a little trembling in that reverence that we approach him. Not a lot, not like we're seeing the Oz and we're scared of what's going to happen when we walk down. But you and I need to have a check. We are dealing with the God of the universe. He's not our chum. He's not our buddy. He's our sovereign. Yes, he calls us his friends. Yes, he says we're his friends if we obey him, if we love him. But a good alignment of all this is do you and I, as we discuss and have strong opinions on race relations, do we fear God in the process? Interestingly, Peter ends it with honor the king. It strikes me he doesn't enter it with honor God or fear God, but he ends with honor the king. Why? Because we live in a horizontal realm. It's important that you and I as believers, no matter where we are on these issues, conduct ourselves becomingly as we have the dialogue, the disagreements, and hopefully work toward unity in the body of Christ. You and I are never going to agree on every point, but you and I can respect each other, we can love each other, and we can show the world by doing good because of Christ's work in our lives, by acting well because of Christ's work in our lives, that we can be loving and appreciative and kind to those even with whom we disagree. This is Michael Easley in Context.